0: Welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This is episode 322.
1: We're still 127002.
0: That's right. We're the, the second edition of it, right? Or the second yeah. show? I don't know. Second show.
1: Second show yeah. on lockdown during the 2020 pandemic. All right.
0: So this is Tony Bemis.
1: Tom Lawrence. Jay LaCroix. Yeah. So... um is it's going to be weird listening to this for people that like catch up a year from now and everything's back to normal or will things be back to normal or will it just be crazy I don't know but it's always interesting whenever there's some chaos things going on and you go back to a podcast or anything that's you know time date sensitive it's always is interesting to me you go oh wow that was from that time you know and it's even when you look back on really old movies that references don't make any sense i'm like oh yeah there was a gas shortage that's why they did that in that particular movie in the 70s like (laughs) right oh
2: gosh yeah well for me it's like when i upload a youtube video due to the delay between when i get it edited and uploaded i'm still uploading videos from before the pandemic started and i look at myself you know with a freshly fresh cut hair and you know not a care in the world or nothing's going on and i'm like oh boy if i only knew it was coming after that (laughs)
1: Yeah, I, I do hear some, some people have opted completely not to shave. And that's been kind of interesting uh, for that same reason. They've just decided to forego certain uh, personal hygiene
2: <laughs> really,
1: <laughs> or rituals. Uh, not necessarily hygiene, but really me rituals they had of shaving and things like that.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. Might as well try something new.
1: I uh, we're thought gonna do about something- doing that, but
0: uh, my, uh, I'm still here with my family. So
1: yeah. that's who I shave for.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I. Um, I am Cherokee Indian, so I just I only shave every few days, and it just doesn't grow in no matter what. If I didn't shave for a few weeks, it, nothing really happens. It's it's, it's just, it just gets kind of a little bit of scraggle, but nothing on the sides. Mm. Anyways, um, we're gonna do this show a little bit different. We're gonna talk a little bit heavier on projects to be working on because. Uh, a lot of us, uh, and well, all three of us have not been diving deep into the news, so we don't have as many news stories for this episode for those listening, uh, but we will talk about some projects we got working on. So uh, do you want to kick that off, Tony, and talk about your projects?
0: Yeah, sure. So I've been working uh, a bit more on uh, Magic Mirror, and I was able to get the Google Calendar to work, but not through any of like, the normal uh, modules that you're supposed to be able to get it through uh i followed all the steps and it says oh yeah you just get this link in there and then it goes and but it never downloads it i don't understand why uh, anyway so what i i did some googling around and i found this command line google calendar uh utility and it's called gcal cli and what it does is you type that or you have to go through some setup and that um you to to get authenticated, and then uh, once that's done, you you type gcal cli and then what kind of calendar you want to be displayed, whether it's an agenda or the weekly um, or the the monthly calendar, um, and then it just puts out text on your uh, command line.
1: That's well, actually that- pretty cool. If you could make sure you drop that in the show notes, because I'm as a Google Calendar user myself, I'm kind of interested in that um and for those of you that don't know the magic mirror project is uh where you can take a mirror and have it uh be a partially a mirror and partially a uh tell you your day's events and tell you what's going on or in Tony's case tell you your google calendar now that he got that part working
0: that's right yeah and, and basically what it is like you said it's a mirror it's a two way mirror and you put a display behind it with uh that's shows all black except for white lettering and uh, and then it looks like like just the this magic why is it telling me like what the weather is that's you know so that's cool and it's based on uh raspberry pi so you take a raspberry pi hook it up to either a monitor or a tv and put that behind uh, a two way mirror and then it shows through uh anyway so there's there's a, a lot of really neat modules that people have made for it and each module you know does, shows something different on the screen and a couple of one I know Phil was trying to get going was his calendar and his um traffic details. You know, it's like what uh what is your traffic gonna be like to drive in to work today? So that's kind of neat stuff.
1: And and Phil working from home makes me laugh that he was stuck on that part. <laughs> <laughs> Well,
0: it's, I think it was his, his it, wife's drive.
1: Completely for his wife. She has a yeah. uh, decent drive from where they live to where she works in Detroit. <laughs> right. I was going to say, what's this, his forecast look like? Uh, what
2: are what are the cats doing? What are the likelihood of tripping on a cat on the way down the <laughs> hall to get to your office?
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I, I uh, couldn't get the calendar to work. And uh, I'm like, well, that's like the whole thing I went on here. Because I want to be able to get up in the morning, glance at that and say, oh, these are the things I have to do today. Uh, And, you know, the same thing for my wife. Uh, So what I I had to do is there's uh, a module called HTML box. And all it does is it displays HTML on the the screen for you. Uh, So I I paired that with this uh, gcal CLI. um, And then I wrote a little script that'll take, that'll runs gcal CLI, shoves it, or it takes the output of that shows it into an HTML. I have some said going through and replacing some spaces and stuff with certain, uh, with like non, you know, HTML stuff. Um, and then it shows up on the, on my magic mirror and, uh, uh, it seems to work pretty good. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. That's and cool. then I told Phil about it and he's like, Oh, you got to share that with me. So that made me think, you know, I need to, uh, I need to get my some kind of uh, uh, Git repository or something set up so I can share my scripts to the public.
1: That, that would be pretty cool because then we can uh, you know, collaborate if you want on a video and do it all remotely and talk about the project, talk about where you can get the GitHub stuff from it. I think there's a lot of people interested in that particular project. Um, oddly of all the things I do in Google that I could pull on there. I'm less interested personally in it, but I think it's a fascinating project uh, overall. It is really cool. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And then my other project that I'm going to start this week is, uh, so I have PF Sense running in my house, and I have a few rules in there that is, right now it's just time-based. And uh, basically it turns the kid's internet off at 8 o'clock at night, and then doesn't turn it back on until uh, 8 a.m., Nice. So they can't get up in the middle of the night and get on their computer and try to watch videos or play games or something. Um, but, uh, but now working at home with the kids, there's times I need, I'm like, well, you're supposed to be reading in your room, not watching YouTube. So uh, I want to write a little script that will, will like it, on a push of a button, it will run and turn on that rule on and off, you know, ah. as uh as I need. And I saw a few people say, yeah, you can do it. Uh, it's a bit complicated, but you know, it's probably easier and better to just talk to your kids and make, and you know, get them to understand what they need to do so far. That's what we've been doing, but it's uh, isn't working as well as I want it to. So I want to be able to, I want to be able to do it uh, just, you know, if they're, if they get in trouble or something, then I can.
1: So this so um, the way that works in pfSense, and I've not actually tried to activate rule, you can change the config file in pfSense, but it doesn't actually apply the rule. So I'd have to—that'd be interesting to figure out. That's where mm-hmm. the complexity comes in: is uh, you can make like when well, you make config changes and things like that. There's that extra step of actually making them live and applying them, or if you reboot the firewall and it re- and it reads from the a config file, it applies, and of course, rebooting a firewall mm. constantly would be not convenient in any way. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> and, Well, one of the things
0: I read, yeah. one of the things I read on, and I need to make sure it's like, it applies to the current version I'm running, which is the, the latest version, that um, there's actually a PHP CLI for yes. PFSense, and you can turn rules on and off there and apply the rule. Uh, without having to edit the config file.
1: And an added way to do that, if you look up Ansible PFSense, someone wrote, well, more than one someone, there's a couple of repositories on GitHub for Ansible scripts for PFSense. Maybe not what you're looking to do, but they will, they already have some of the command structure that you may want to pull from and look at the way mm-hmm. they did the coding on it. And that's what they did. So you can just use Ansible to log in and grab information or push changes to PF uh, PFSense. So yeah. they probably have some of that scripting already completed.
0: Actually, that's that'd probably be perfect. What I need, uh, because you, you have uh, Ansible, uh, what is it? Uh, uh it's not a um, recipe, whatever it's called.
1: Uh, the playbooks,
0: yeah, the playbook. Yep. To say, turn on this rule for a playbook and then turn off. And then, so what then I want to do is with the magic mirror, not magic mirror, but I have um, the Mozilla web things, you know, home automation. I want to put a a button on there that from my phone, I can just hit a button on my, uh, on that page. It'll run the script to turn that rule on and off. Okay. And then my wife can do it too.
1: And I think if you did that, like if you you know started tying all these things together, you did it with Ansible, it logs in, it has his SSH key, it executes the command, um, and turns mm-hmm. that rule on off. I think that is a pretty logical workflow to make that work.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's that's my uh, my plan. So now it's just get the actual uh, syntax to how
1: to do it. Yeah, and this is something I thought about because um, so the problem we have with my son is sometimes I can't get his attention because he's being loud with his friends playing games in the other room. And I let him stay up not too late, but a little bit later doing it. But he'll get, you know, too excited about the game. He's 13. Uh, the way I can get his attention without getting off the couch is to log into the PF Sense on my phone, which, by the way, works rather well on mobile. And mm-hmm. I have a rule that's, you know, disabled, but easy to enable. And it drops all his internet connections. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yep.
0: Yeah. yeah. So my thought is that, that exact thing. I have the rule sitting there. You just need to enable it, disable it. Uh, And, but then have it as a, uh, just as a button push, you know, instead of having to log in and and I I like
1: this idea a lot. Yeah. You
2: know, it's funny. You guys are kind of going through the same thing I'm going through and I have the same use case for the exact same thing. But in my case, I use Unify. So there's Wi-Fi schedule right there in the settings, you know, just how, Mm. how long you want the SSID to be available. So I just set the schedule and that's it. But the problem is, if I wanted, if, if he's like, yeah, can I have like 10 extra minutes? Yeah, no problem. Okay, fine. I got to go in the settings. I can add, however, much more time, apply the changes, then all the Unify access points reboot, Yeah. everything drops, even the stuff that shouldn't be in, impacted by it, uh-huh. then everything comes back up and then the settings are there. And then he comes to me and says, well, is there any way we could come up with a system where if I say I need five extra minutes to save something that you could just add a minute or two i'm like not really you're just gonna have to make sure that you're done before the cutoff time because um it takes that long just to reboot the entire system after i make a change which is kind of frustrating and wow. i would think unify would have a better system than that but it it does work it's just annoying mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's the way uh, Unify, and, I, and not just Unify, other uh, systems we work with do the same thing. When you apply changes, there's a um, config file on each device because they run a, uh, I think it's BusyBox, but it's a really tiny Linux kernel on every device, um, and it rereads the config file. And it, They don't have a way to say, only read the config file for this particular uh, antenna on the device that controls this SSID it's an all or nothing. So every time you do an apply and it reprovisions, provisions if it requires to reread the config file, it restarts all the services on there, therefore dropping all the connections to restart it with the new config. That's, a,
2: yeah, it's exactly what I go through, but it, I don't know, I did try through PFSense and I got frustrated and I'm like, yeah, this is too, too difficult. And I'm like, oh, Unify has a feature and it's right there, there in, the unif- in the interface. It may not be as, may not have as many options, but it, it works kind Mm. of i mean other than rebooting everything but as long as i don't make any make any changes it it just drops the kids ssid and then the rest of them don't drop until i make a change again but
1: you know when we get all of this done and all three of us get all of our projects done related to this we could do a parenting with technology yeah (laughs) that's like a whole episode
2: aka how to hack your kids computers Mm. (laughs) yeah you know
0: what i did with my rule for that which i think is uh um, uh, really convenient for the way I have my network set up here. So I have actually like four networks in my house. Uh, and, um, so the kids are on the guest and that's almost everything in my house is on the guest network. Uh, but there's times that like my PF sent, or my, um, uh, Plex is on my main network. So I have, um, I have the rule set so that I can drop the internet but they can still access the uh, stuff within my other networks, um, which, I, which works pretty good. And that way, if they're watching something on uh, Plex or we're watching uh, a movie or something, I want them to do, they can keep on letting that run, but their internet will drop. Uh, and I, and so I think that's pretty cool.
2: I think that's probably better because then you run into the problem if you do it like I do it, you wanna enable their internet again. Mm-hmm. but their internet was just shut off. So now their laptop can't download the instruction or whatever, or playbook to enable again. So oh, you pretty yeah. much lock yourself out of everything until their computers come up the next day. So that's right. probably better. It 1001...
0: also leaves um, uh, printers available too, so yeah. that they can print uh, if they're working on a paper or something at night. They, they're not on the internet, but they can print.
1: And, and the side note is, too, if you block the internet in PFSense, now I think there's an override for this, but it's not how it works by default. Uh, the state tables, like if I have a, a connection set and I create a firewall rule that would not allow that connection, until the existing state tables expire, the connection stays persistent. Now they do get stale and expire, so they start dropping. And obviously you can't make new state tables because I've blocked the internet from the computer on my son's computer when I do it um but it is worth note that it it's not an immediate effect from the time i do it to the time all of mm. a sudden this doesn't work that doesn't work i can't open a new web page but i can keep talking on my voice chat for a few minutes longer cuz those state tables are still there until they try to reset and get a new session and then they, they die So that is something to note on there. It kind of gives them time to save things. If they have a document open that they need to save and they're doing it like a Google session, uh, that state table would still exist for at least for a few moments until they closed it.
0: (laughs) No, that makes sense. I I have seen that delay, and I I was figuring it was something like that, but uh, it's nice to know the specifics on that.
1: I I played around with it because – um, one of the videos when I was, I made about firewall rules, I show how I can start an SSH connection, then block the SSH connection, but the one I have in the existing one doesn't die. I can't make a new one, but the one existing doesn't die until there's, I don't know how long a state table lasts. I don't know what the timer is before it tries to reinitiate, but they last quite a while.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So some things kind of work for a little while until they refresh and then they can't.
0: Cool. The other thing I read about PS Sense is um, that, and we had all been talking about it quite a bit, that the next version, when you go to, so they're on 2.4.5 is what it was just released. When they go to 2.5, it was supposed to be that they were going to require a specific um, um, processor flag, right? Yeah,
1: AESNI.
0: Right, they are no longer going to require that. Correct. They've, Yeah. so so that that's nice for me because my pf sense right now does not have that and i'd have to replace the hardware to something newer
1: yeah they were going to do a couple things that required it and they abandoned it was a pretty lofty goal they had and they kind of abandoned it um i actually talked with uh the developer what did i can't remember um Jim Thompson, I, I, we had a we had a Google Hangouts with him, a personal mm-hmm. one, uh, talking about products and things like that, and, and with their product person. But we talked about some of the things they were trying to achieve and why they changed their mind on it. So it was a cool conversation. I've actually had I've had two conversations now with them, and it's been kind of interesting. All right. Oh, very cool.
0: Yeah. So that was the things I've been working on, uh, Tom. What are you working on?
1: XCPNG. So they moved to eight point one is the latest version uh and i well, my lab got commandeered because of hot glue um, yeah. what <laughs> i I had a server running it, it was just, just an extra lab server which my i my staff knows they asked me if they could take apart the lab server to help a client out and i said yes um the the, the side briefing is a uh, the previous i t company were really, really bad, and they finally went out of business, which is a really good thing um because they were just doing bad IT. Well, one of their clients we picked up and the client won't spend money to have us audit their network. They should, but they won't. So one of the things they did was the previous IT company, apparently like building all the computers, including like domain controllers out of Asus gaming motherboards. Hmm. And the MVME, they broke the little holder that where the screw goes in, they broke the screw hole out, but the motherboard still worked. So they hot glued it in. (laughs) <laughs> then the hot glue came apart and I don't know, it, the motherboard wouldn't work anymore. We held it down and it boots when we held it down. So we were able to get the data off, but we couldn't, it, it just, even after more hot glue, it wouldn't stay together. Mm. So they stole my lab server that had XCP and G because we happen to have another almost identical motherboard and we want to get this client up and running. And right now during a pandemic, you can't order parts at a reasonable amount of time. And of course a domain controller down means there's, this is an essential company that has, I don't know, a hundred employees that weren't doing anything. Mm, wow. <laughs> so we, we sacrificed my lab server, but that being said, that's what leads into the story of XCPNG 8.1. So a couple of new features they've really added that's neat in XCPNG is Zen server, Uh, With a ton of features fully open source and because I'm building myself a new lab server I'm going to be doing videos on how to build a fully open source lab server Which includes all the new bells and whistles Uh, one of those bells and whistles is going to include Snapshots with memory which is I I demoed that feature. It's magic to me Um, You can not only snapshot to like the drives and restore a system from a snapshot you can snapshot from memory so, I can completely shut down a system, destroy it, restore it from its exact running state, memory, and everything is one of the features they added. And this is a really advanced feature that you do get with, I think, VMware can do this. And Jay, does Proxmox have the ability to do a snapshot with memory um, in place? I haven't tried, so I'm not yeah. sure. It's, it's an interesting feature because... Let's say I start up a machine and I started it up today, but then I actually delete and destroy the machine. I start it up again in a week from now. If you actually restore from memory, it'll allow you and it'll have the uptime of a week because it thinks it was running because it looks at current time and as long as the time dates on there. Um, It's also kind of nice because it even restores all the sessions or any logins that were uh, there. Of course, there's breakage if other things weren't logged in. with that being said, the other part is I'm doing on this lab is how to build all the private networking. They've added a couple of new features to XCPNG, which is uh, VXLANs and um, private LANs with encrypted tunnels. What you can do is have a system so your front end. Let's say you want to build a virtual PFSense because you want to do some learning. Then behind the PFSense, you can create VXLANs. They can extend between different xcpng machines or you can do this all in one single one and build out all your own private networking stand up everything do your own port forwarding uh create all these different sessions all these different networks and physically the machine only has to have one physical network card for all the connections so mm-hmm. i'm going to walk through the entire process kind of a start to finish how to build your uh virtual lab how to stand up machines behind it how to attach them all to the like for example loading pf sense so if you deploy that uh, how to attach all the private networking through it, kind of your own private cloud server. Um, and it's self-contained. So you can actually learn and about VLANs, learn about how networking works, but you don't have to have a bunch of hardware. And I know some people will say, well, you can simulate it with like GNS3 and some of those other utilities that simulate networks for labs. But this is a little bit more real world than that. You're not just dragging some simulation tool. You're actually building all the servers and everything else. And it's going to be kind of a fun home lab build uh, to have a mix of virtual and real networking all tied together and to go a step further to be able to build a virtual lab that where you have more than one machine and they will completely encrypted talk to each other and uh, Tony's probably a little bit you did you ever deal with VX lands and when you had your previous job with the enterprise no. stuff no Uh, VXLANs are like VLANs, but they're encrypted VLANs that can span across even data centers. And um, that's a cool feature to have completely built in because you start doing all the learning on that. You're like, oh, I get it. And then picture a concept of I want to have a network in data center in Chicago, and I want to have another network at an adjacent data center, but I want to have it on like a separate VLAN. Well, that's where VXLANs come in, and that's all built into XCPNG now. You can have private networks share between separate servers or even separate data centers provided you had the bandwidth between them. Uh, But I've dove deep into how that whole system works. And all of this from top to bottom, everything you can do, free and open source. So it's a way to build a really extensive system. And of course, some people want to get into like application or virus testing or port tapping so you can watch the applications and all the data they send. They make that really easy to do in XCPNG because, well, you're building it all in your own private tunnels. So a lot of my, I've spent a lot of time kind of like sketching it all out so I can do the video on it. Um, somewhat related to that, we had some new servers we put in with XCPNG and I did some videos on those. And Just showcasing um, the way XCPNG works and the way I can just pass everything around between server to server, Uh, they call it vMotion in VMware, but uh, I will admit XCPNG, it started as this open source project that forked from Citrix and has become from version 7.4 where they forked it, now they're at 8.1 in just a couple of years to, they're not just on par, they've got features that are beyond what VMware offers in a fully open source, no license needed stack. And uh, I just kinda wanna put together a whole showcase video of all the features on that. So I think it's gonna be kind of fun to talk about.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. That is a a very cool project. Uh, I just, unfortunately I don't have the money nor the really (laughs) use case to put that in place in my place, in my house, but uh,
1: it's a really cool project. Yeah, I mean, Jay already did the low-powered network. This is going to be a little bit more of a high-powered network, Um, but that's what is interesting about XCPNG, and we helped a client. Now, I didn't know this as much. They were using uh, Ceph with uh, Proxmox, and have you ever, Jay, used Ceph and Proxmox together where you're doing like the – I forget what you call that, the hyperconverged storage systems?
2: I have not. I'm using FreeNAS on mine and that's as far as I've ever gone with it. So I was doing shared storage with it where FreeNAS was kind of like the backend storage for all the VMs, but now I've kind of just simplified it. The VMs are on the Proxmox server itself and then FreeNAS is just used for backup. And just to simplify it, the gigabit, long story made short, I've had some issues with the 10 gigabit, so I kind of just removed it. I might revisit it, but right now it's just uh, standard free NAS for backup, but it's using NVMe storage. Um, I don't think it's technically NVMe. I think it's just M.2, but it's still pretty fast SSD. And that's what all the VMs run off of is that SSD, which is actually pretty darn fast. I love it.
1: Yeah. What we ran into was we helped the client transition. Um, we just gave them some of the setup and some consulting. Um, they had some problems with the hyper converged on uh, Proxmox. And they were running the scalability problems and they were running, this is a big, big company. And uh, they ran into some limitations. And this is where I think there's a, a little bit of a difference. Uh, and I think Proxmox is a great project, but it seems like it, it, this is my understanding from doing the consulting work, and I'm not an expert on Proxbox, but there's some scalability problems that people run into with it when they try to run it at the scale versus XCPNG has built in load balancing automatically will shift based on load, all the systems between an entire cluster of servers, they have a lot of that functionality kind of um, built in and I've seen people running like 800 VMs inside of XCPNG. So um, it's kind of, it's kind of fun. I think it's a good product to learn for people because it does scale on par with what VMware um, can do. And it's even their own comparisons they do on their website are a lot about that, but kind of related to, I, I, for backends and for storage, um, I have been focusing still on FreeNAS. It still makes a great backend storage server uh, for that. And of course, FreeNAS is another thing because they're converging their two code bases: their uh, FreeNAS version and their TrueNAS version, which is their FreeNAS with enter- plus enterprise support. It's merging all in one code base. So once again, if you learn either one of those, uh, FreeNAS and their TrueNAS, you know, uh, pair system there is used extensively in the corporate world. If you if you do a job search on any of the places, you start looking for like FreeNAS or you type in TrueNAS, you'll find a lot of places and a lot of big companies are hiring for, for that particular knowledge because it is a popular, we're talking like petabytes of storage system. Uh, we just picked up a new consulting job with a, a movie production studio. Uh, they're a, what they call a VFX company. They do like some of the special effects. And we're helping them build out their new, I think it's one and a half or two petabyte server just for all the video files. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. Huge. And they, um, they've they experienced, they said, you know, they looked at the commercial products and they've had the the thing that we don't worry about as much at the scale we're doing it at. But at the scale they do it, they need archival footage. And uh, they've seen the bit rot and they've seen it even in some commercial storage things they bought and they were really unhappy that they had videos that had minor glitches and corruption in them that they had to do recoveries on just because it sat for so long and there was some type of problem with the arrays they said mm. since they such a free NAS not they, they didn't even buy true NAS that's what they're looking at next they've had no bit rot and they're said they can't believe that an open source project like this is better than what they paid way too much for as they put it a commercial movie industry data storage server um, that you pay huge license fees for support and he goes, I'm just unhappy with the product. We're building free NAS because the, the, as he calls it, the amateur thing I did building it is more solid and more stable and easier to use than the commercial product he was using. Mm. Wow. <laughs> That's good. So And it's, I mean, we're talking about people who actually have a a petabyte worth of data on. They're not like they're just building it. They're not data hoarders. They're like, this is, look, we shoot 8K epic red footage. Like this is what a shoot looks like. (laughs) Mm. They're doing like the, the, I can't say the company's name, but I will say they have an IMDB. (laughs) They've worked on big movies you've heard of. (laughs) That's awesome. So that's been my dive lately is uh, diving into more videos like that and projects, but um, I think it's fun i, I, I it's a convergence because I see that question come up like, well, is this really ready for prime time and things like that? And I pointed out before, even PF sense uh, for a while, um, MasterCard was hiring p f sense people, and you can still do that same thing. You go on one of the job search sites and look you'll find some very big companies hiring specifically Sense people it's they large companies don't talk about the stack they're using very often, but it's used more than people realize in the commercial uh, markets in the large company for even fortune 1000 company markets Hmm. that's cool that's what i've been diving into lately and uh the back end of all this is you know people see the video and no matter how hard you work and you know jay making a lot of youtube videos no there's always some commenter you forgot to mention you didn't think about you're like you know how long it took me to put all this together
2: Or even find the time to even film it in the first place, yeah. because sometimes you could be so busy that even an hour of recording is, is something you could take for granted because it's so hard to get.
1: Well, yeah, and there's, there's so many hours that go into recording um, and tons of that gets cut out because I, I mean, no one wants to watch me pause. While I wait for the next thing to load, so I'm trimming all that out. I'm editing. You know, if I shoot two hours of video, I need to trim out thirty minutes of it where I was waiting for like something to compile. When I show how to compile things from source, I'm like, so there's a lot of editing work, and it's so you forgot to mention. <laughs> I still love doing yeah. that. I, I shouldn't complain. I, you know, the, I, YouTube has been kind to me. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I know everything. how that
2: goes. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun.
1: So how about you, Jay? What do you got going on? So,
2: okay. Um, Since the last time we recorded, I don't think a whole lot has changed. I've just kind of been refining what I've had. I I mean, I did upload a video recently about, you, you mentioned it, the low power Proxmox server. But technically, I mean, you could put whatever OS on there. I mean, you could even put Debian and run KVM if you wanted to. Um, it's more about the hardware. xcpng would, I'm guessing, work probably fine on that hardware. But it was part of my power usage um, obsession at one point. That was for no reason because, you know, my servers were not the reason why my power bill was so high. <laughs> Maybe 20 or $30 of my power bill at most, and, you know, when I found out how to you know the algorithm for it but that video was recorded before the pandemic and i think i even mentioned it in the last video so i don't think that's you know for our listeners that's really new so i've I've been refining i was playing around with containers more Um, kubernetes is what i'm kind of playing with right now i have kubernetes running in raspberry pi i think i did mention that but since the last video actually did set up an nginx proxy in um, um you know in proxmox that will control or route the traffic to the containers. And since the last video, I now have static IPs from Comcast Business. So I have a static IP that comes in to PFSense and then it it goes to a NGINX proxy that's looking at the requested uh, domain name that you're looking for. So I set up an IRC bouncer. I think I did mention that in the last video, but I didn't have it working externally, it was just working internally. So now I have the routing outside to inside on my containers, when I actually do want a container to be publicly available, because I don't always want that to be the case. And it's just one of these things where I'm trying to wrap my head around Kubernetes networking, which um, some people may have an easy time with that. Maybe some people don't, I didn't, it it was just tough, It it was annoying. It was like um, an entire weekend, I was just um, fighting it, saying some words that you guys haven't heard me say before, uh, multiple times, mm. trying to get that to work. But all of that's just been refining what I was already working on. But what I was thinking I could talk about a little bit is some of the things that I've done um, even further back that I may not have mentioned that might be some fun things for you guys, also the listeners to kind of, you know, since we're talking about what we run internally on our networks and everything. So I wanted, for example, to have an easy way to bootstrap a VM. You know, you bring a new VM online and you have some things that you want to be installed on it, some default packages, config files that you generally want to be on everything. And I use Ansible for that. And then what I would do is I would, um, you know, apt install Ansible after adding the repository. Once that's on on the machine, then I would just um, run Ansible pull, which is kind of like the opposite of normal Ansible. It's like, instead of an Ansible server connecting to your VM to configure it, your VM is actually downloading a Git repository and running it localhost. So basically that's how I run Ansible. But you know, I, I still have to download that script after installing Ansible and do all that manually. But then I'm like, you know, there's probably a better way. So what I did, is I set up a web server. It's actually a utility server on a Raspberry Pi. It does a lot of things, but one of the things it does is it has Apache on there, and it's literally serving a bash script. Now, you know, we always warn people, don't run a bash script sudo bash after using curl from something you download off the internet. But in my case, this web server is not publicly available. It's internal only on a Raspberry Pi, so I trust it because I'm the only one that can access it. But on my network, on any machine, I could simply run curl, um, deploy slash bootstrap, and then pipe it to sudo bash. That's it. Mm. It, insta- it, does, it installs Ansible. It downloads the Git repository. It runs it local host. It sets up the cron job to make it run every subsequent time. Now I got it down to just that one command because I have an Apache server that's hosting that bash script internally so any machine can hit it. Um, so I thought that was a lot of fun, and it only took me, you know, if you know Apache pretty well, you could probably do that in five or ten minutes. It's just apt install Apache 2, or whatever your distro is, you just drop the file where it goes, and there's some options you set in Apache to serve that file, and then you're done, so that was one thing that I did for making it easy to bootstrap stuff, and you don't even have to use Ansible. I mean, if you have, like, just a bunch of apt install commands on one line one after another you could just put that in apache that's something you find yourself doing a lot and then do that for many machine so you know that's certainly an option so that's one of the things that i did and i think i talked a little bit about my raspberry Pis before but it's just this ongoing experiment it's like when you have a home lab i mean how much power do you really need right i mean I have a YouTube channel, so I don't see myself getting away from FreeNAS anytime soon because I need somewhere to put the video files in. Maybe a Raspberry Pi would be fine, but, you know, I kind of want ECC memory, so that kind of rules that out. But aside from that, I do have my Proxmox server, which I did spend a lot of money on. But long term, will I go with another actual server? I might not. Maybe Raspberry Pis are just the way to go for home lab. And um, the Kubernetes containers that I'm running is kind of... My entry point into that project to see how realistic it is to do everything on Raspberry Pis, and I've listened to other podcasts. There's also the self-hosted podcast, which I've been enjoying quite a bit, and even the hosts on there are doing kind of the same thing, just running things on Raspberry Pis. And I'm like, you know, maybe there's something to this. So there's all these experiments with uh, home lab that I'm doing that I I think will end up creating video content for my channel, but right now it's just having fun like what if this and then okay I'll run this crazy experiment see if it works and or if it just fails miserably and just um, go back to the drawing board maybe do it again do it better the second time just keep repeating and I think that's the value of, of home lab because it causes you to think in ways you wouldn't normally think try things you wouldn't normally try do experiments you, you wouldn't normally do and especially if you work in IT right now you're not going to go on the company servers oh what if this and then you run an experiment then you know everything comes crashing down you'd have a lot of angry people but at, but at home the most you'll do is upset your family if the flex server isn't running but but i think that's i mean they can't fire you so i think that'll that'll be fine <laughs>
1: right you know so um, let's say on the freeNAS side uh i went with and i've got 40 terabytes of because i have four 10 terabyte drives so raw 40 terabytes uh but seven z1 that's my uh, free NAS server at home uh, for a handful of things and some backups but one of the reasons I went with that particular one it's the free NAS mini e and the e is the basic super low power I think I can't remember if the wattage was something like 60 watts or something really tiny so I have a pretty decent amount of storage usability almost like 26 terabytes or something like that of storage but still at the expense of having it that and I'm actually, um, I'm using it with an iSCSI extent as the steam library. So I have a 10 terabyte steam library um, for my, that's how my son plays all his games. That's pretty cool. <laughs> it's connected via iSCSI and it's low powered. So I'm, I'm not gonna get away from finance anytime soon because you know, between my YouTube channel, which of course I, I do that at my office and I have a um, what, 26 terabytes there. Um, and I got quite a bit of data on it it's hard to get away from it to low power because I have a 10 gig connection to it. So a nice fast connection. So I can edit really fast and I edit everything on it, not just archival, but real time. That's where all my data gets dumped to. But, so I don't know if I'm going to, I have a Raspberry Pi in my future for the editing part. Um, But the other servers, yeah, you could probably get away with Raspberry Pi to save a lot of wattage. I think for us, it's harder, you know, to, to get away from
2: those servers completely. But I think if you if you aren't doing uh, content creation, I think it's a lot more approachable for the average person, because I mean, at most, I mean, you're storing, um, you know, family photos or whatever it is you store. It might get a little complicated if you're dealing with Plex, because I've heard you can run Plex on a Raspberry Pi four. However, you probably have to use certain video formats that transcode is you know less often than others. To really make that work. But I've heard people have been successful with that. I'm not saying anyone should run out and do that because you know it may not work very, very well. But if you know how to convert media formats yourself, there's something to it. But outside of that, um, you know, if you're gonna run VMs, maybe you could just run what you would run in VMs in a Raspberry Pi. In my case, it's a cluster, you know, Kubernetes. And um, speaking of that, I have a free NAS NFS share on there and that's where all the containers uh, dump their stateful data so i could delete a container and, and it gets recreated then it automatically comes up with all the settings because each container is mounting its own folder in um free nas that is where all of its data goes and that that means that's when you're doing containerization right you could delete the container and yeah, no problem it'll just spin up and be like nothing ever happened and that, so FreeNAS plays a role in that as well right now, so I actually like FreeNAS a lot, so I don't think I'm going to get away from it, but it is an interesting thing to see how far you can get with a, you know, $40 or less or however much they cost nowadays, little board, and um, one thing I also did was I put um, uh, power over ethernet hats on all of them except for one. I had a Raspberry Pi 3, and you know, I didn't buy one for that. But all my Raspberry Pi 4s, which is all the other ones, my UniFi switch powers them as well. So I don't even have power cords going to my Kubernetes cluster. My Kubernetes cluster is running strictly off of Ethernet, literally. It, it's it's that, just awesome.
1: And that's and really cool. cool. I, I just find that fascinating. I, you know, my, my sump pump camera that I've talked about a couple times, that's how it runs. Mm-hmm. The power adapters um, in a closet where all my other networking gear is, and uh, it just runs one cord down to where the sump pump is under my house with one when you you know Ethernet cord that powers it and everything. Yep, Uh, Tony is holding one up in his hand right now. This
0: is I bought a (laughs) second one this week that that does that's the PoE and and it does the PoE uh, what Q, so it does all Mm -hmm. the right uh, negotiation and stuff.
2: Uh, Mine is eleven dollars. That, that is that is awesome. Yeah, My, mine is weird. Like I don't even understand how it works to be honest. Like I, I get this thing shipped and I'm like looking at this, I'm staring at it. I'm like, I don't even know how to describe it because I'm like, how does this even work? It's just this little tiny circuit board that you mm-hmm. just put on the um, GPIO pins.
0: Oh, it's a hat. Yeah.
2: It's literally a hat and there's nothing hanging off of it. There's no cables. It's not, connected to the it's not like you're putting something in between the ethernet jack and the ethernet cable or anything it's like literally it's taking voltage from one section of the pi and routing it to another it's almost like mm. a i don't want to call it a jumper but it's really hard to explain maybe i'll put a link in the show notes so people can actually does see it for have, themselves
0: does it have little um, uh, sensors or little leads that touch the the back end of the ethernet um jack
2: i don't know i don't think so it, it literally just goes over the gpio pins and mm-hmm. there's some kind of way that it does that i'm not really sure how this works because i still don't understand it it works it's like so
1: the gpio pins are connected to a couple of the network pins if i'm not mistaken and it pulls those couple the, the poe related network pins and then pushes it back because um you don't use all if you ever looked at the pin out for them um, uh, for the Pi, you can power it from the GPIO pins. So it's grabbing one, making sure it's the right voltage to the negotiation, hence the way the hat works, and then pushing the, the five volt needed back down on the GPIO pins. Yeah,
2: it's something, yeah, that sounds about right. I, I don't know, it just like, it just looks like magic. It's just, I put this little, this little cool. <laughs> chip uh, over the GPIO pins and they're in these cases that are glowing like these neon glowing fans. And there's nothing but, but network cables going into them. And then I plug in the network cable and then I see the fan come on and you know, each pie comes on as I plug the power or the ethernet cable in and it's a full Kubernetes cluster. And it's just so cool. It's It's just so much fun to work with this technology and experiment with it and also get an exercise in cable management too, because there's far fewer cables to deal with. So yeah, that was That's a fun right part of the project too. And, Other than that, I mean, I've been playing a lot of video games. I think a lot of people have, um, anytime I'm not doing that or working because work has been very busy, I went back to um, this Game Boy game from like 2001 that I just never beat. It's just been on my list for years, for 19 years. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to beat this game finally. And then I just get glued to it and I have like almost 50 hours logged on to this game right now finally <laughs> beat it and then final fantasy 7 the remake comes out so now i'm on that so i have to peel myself off the games to work on my cluster then i get into that and have to peel myself off of that to get back to the game and then you know balance work and everything else too it's just an interesting world today so
1: yeah oh lots of fun
2: yeah, it really is
1: all right, well, you we covered all the projects now. Yep, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: so we got a little bit of news, so we're gonna look through or, or um, no, no.
1: listener feedback. We'll do a couple mentions. Uh, yeah. we did get we Jay heard back from uh, Brad on the home lab, some uh, discussion yep. on that.
2: Yeah, we had some discussion on that, and you know, I love having discussions about home lab, especially when I read how other people are doing it, and then you know, I think. Most people that do home lab, what they do is a combination of things that they have learned from others and combined, oh, I like this piece, I like that piece. And he was asking us about FreeNAS eleven point three. And um, you know, Brad felt like you know the interface wasn't quite there yet. And there might be some rough edges, but I mean I've been using eleven point three for I guess as soon as it's come out, I've not had any trouble with it personally. But everybody's use case is different. So if there's any rough edges and it's on features I don't use, then I wouldn't see it.
1: So they just released 11.3 U2, and there's almost no feature updates, but there's over 150 really minor but certainly annoying bugs they fixed. So uh, if anyone's uncomfortable with the latest version of FreeNAS and you've run into this bug or that bug, take a look at the 11. And I like what the way they did this. Um, if you go to the blog for FreeNAS, instead of listing what they fixed, they just put a Jira link. They're like, "Here's all the bugs. Here's over 150 bugs we fixed." <laughs> wow. We don't have to do a blog post about it, and they they were some real minor ones, but they were, if you're not familiar with setting up, uh, for example, snapshotting. There was an error if you did that, it would let you put the wrong date in. And, matter of fact, the pull down would default to an invalid date and the middleware would kick back that you can't create a snapshot um, because you changed the time you wanted to do the snapshot. There was workarounds for it, but of course, if you're not a power user of FreeNAS, this was very challenging. So, um, I highly recommend if you decide you want to move to the 11.3 series, now is the time to finally do it because with All the bugs, like I said, over 150 bug fixes, yes, they probably fixed that one little minor bug you had.
2: (laughs) And that might be the case for Brad as well because uh, one of the things he was writing in about was this traceback error where it's showing a timeout. It's basically a, a bunch of Python errors. It says call timeout, and it's related to disk information, but when he runs the command on the command line it works fine it's able to get, you know grab all the data and it looks like it's supposed to work so maybe that could very well be a bug but i haven't personally seen this before so i'm not really sure what to do
1: about well, it Well, and i remember reading through the errata and i as i did a video about the new release but um one of the ones i didn't cover because it doesn't affect me personally and i just hadn't seen the bug but maybe this is what brad was having a problem with was um, they had a certain series of LSI controllers that wasn't pulling the data right from the drives as far as like the smart information.
2: Yeah, I thought about I thought about that too, but this, it's like when he does it through the command line, it works.
1: Yeah, well, that's the whole thing—the middleware that you know, uh, went up to the interface wasn't pulling it right. Um, but that's different than pulling smart control right from the command line. And I don't know because I couldn't. It's not a. Re- I don't have that controller, so I can't really validate the bug. But either way. Um, Search through the 150 bugs and maybe there's some bugs related to the problems that Brad was having. So if you're listening to Brad, um, go ahead and take a look at it. And if you're not familiar with FreeNAS, the way they do it, Um, everything creates a series of backup slices. So if you update FreeNAS, provided you don't, uh, if there's any ZFS version changes and you do push those, you can't roll back. But if you don't push ZFS version changes, which is a manual operation inside of FreeNAS, you just load it and you don't like it, you can just reboot and go back to the old version.
2: That's a good point. And it's using smart CTL for interrogating the drives. And it could just be that maybe it's using a different library or a different underlying system to do the same thing. Maybe, you know, that works fine, but maybe the PF sense method or the Python library it's using has a bug or, I mean, it could be any number of things. Um, I'm always interested in these kinds of problems because I just, it just feels really good to solve it. Hey, I figured it out. You know, I feel like, I'm the doctor house of computers because I have this moment, aha. And then I go into the patient's room and your computer has this problem because of this, this and that. And I wish I could be that person right now, but um, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe like you said, running the latest version and just seeing whether or not it fixes it may be the way to go. Um, I hope that works.
1: Yes. Only in doctor house, he always guessed it was lupus and in in technology it's always DNS.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, what's our lupus in in okay. IT? The one the one thing we think it could be, but it never is it's until always we finally... DNS. Always DNS. I was going to yeah, say for DNS. me, it's always been, SATA cables being bad or network cables being bad, memory going bad. Are th- those are all mine that are just, they, they've they've happened, and it's like, yeah, uh, your memory's bad.
1: Yeah. Well, in Tony's world, it's always uh, BGP. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, Humans touching BGP is probably what causes Tony the most drama.
0: It's actually when they, uh, when the ISP updates their routers and breaks things, it's like, why aren't you letting go of that route? Yes. Now I look bad because of you. Uh,
1: Um, yeah. Tony, Tony talked about the magic mirror and I think there was some listener feedback about the magic mirror. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. 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 We have a, a listener. Dave had, uh, emailed to us and said that he did a HPR show uh, about him setting up his magic mirror. Oh, cool. And uh, I'm not sure if you guys know about HPR, uh, but it's the Hacker Public Radio podcast. And they are up to 3,000, over 3,000 episodes. Oh, awesome. And uh, it's a daily episode. It's all community driven. Uh, Basically you... Uh, record yourself saying something, make some notes on it and send it into them and then they'll publish it. Yeah. So he, he went through and uh, did his setup and what modules he's using and, uh, and getting it working and, uh, and it looks really good. Uh, The notes are are pretty uh, detailed. So, uh, so that's nice
1: too. Yeah. So check out Hacker Public Radio and look for the uh, magic mirror.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So it's Dave uh, and it's HPR 3039.
1: Oh, uh, awesome. Yeah. And if you'd like to leave feedback, it is uh, reach us at show at smlr.us. That's S-H-O-W at smlr.us. That's right. Moving on to, I think this, as far as I know, it's all the listener feedback we have, right? All right. Yeah. Moving on to DistroWatch. So, uh, or distro fever, as we used to call it. Um, it, It's all on the edge of new releases. There's like so little on here right now because we know generally, well, and we're in a weird situation. I don't know if anything's going to get delayed, but we're going to see Ubuntu and all of its derivatives get updates, but that hasn't happened yet. Uh, So the only thing I found really noteworthy myself in here was Tails. Uh, They're at version point. I'm sorry, 4.5. And if you're not familiar with Tails, if you're really looking for the ultimate way to be anonymous with Tor, as in you don't leak your MAC address, you don't have any of your information because you're booting it up, so there's no accidental, oops, I opened up in the wrong window type thing, uh, Tails is the amnesic incognito. Incognito Live System is a Debian based live DVD USB based with the goal of providing complete internet and anonymity for the user. Basically, you boot it up, it connects to Tor. It's got a lot of lockdown features uh, built in to keep anything from leaking out. And because you're not running it on your regular computer, there's none of those, you know, copying and pasting the link into the wrong browser. It's a completely bootable operating system that connects right to Tor. I always find it a fascinating project. I reviewed it a couple times on my channel. I find it very interesting when you want to do some testing and things like that. It's also you can run it in a VM. It also knows when it's running in a VM and gives you a warning that you're running in a VM. <laughs> mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Uh, it was really nice when uh, uh, you know when uh, live distros were were uh, a new thing. And so it was nice having that out They actually the DOD had their own spin of this, uh, which was interesting.
1: Yes. And I'm 99% sure when I read Snowden's book, he talked about this as well when he he was using it to boot it up there. One of the things tails does is um, this is a problem. If you run it in a VM, you have to either allow your VM to do this because VMs will force the Mac address and won't let you just, change it arbitrarily but one of the things it wants to do is train generate a new Mac address each time it boots so um, if you boot it up and you do want to run a VM you got to turn you you can hit an option like hey don't try to randomize my Mac address but uh, the default option to do that is actually pretty nice because that way it's not it, it uh, Linux will easily let you do this I don't think I don't know if you can do this easily in Windows uh, but Linux will let you update the Mac address or at least spoof a Mac address mm-hmm. um, on your adapter yeah so I don't know. Do you see any other distro release that's, I mean, the Ubuntu stuff's in beta right now, so it's not. Yep.
2: Sometimes I wonder if Ubuntu is the Star Wars of Linux. So I'll explain. So when you have a <laughs> new Star Wars movie coming out, you ever notice how like no other movies are coming out because nobody wants to release their film around the same time as a new Star Wars film comes out. So we have this quiet period and Ubuntu's about to come out and then you know, then it does. And it's like, there's there's no other major release coming out at the same time. It's probably a coincidence, but at the same time, it's going to overshadow pretty much everything here in a week or two, because you're not only going to have Ubuntu, you'll have Kubuntu, Ubuntu Mate, and all the related family of those. And then right after that, like next month, you'll have Pop! OS coming out. And then also next month, the new Linux Mint. So it goes from like, Kind of boring to oh my god i don't have time to try all these in less than three weeks
1: yeah i think you're you're right on the money there um that's definitely that's definitely exactly what happens so next month we'll have lots to talk about Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh yeah
0: you know it was uh released recently was a new version of open media vault uh, and it's updated to to use debian 10.
2: You know, I actually was kind of curious what you guys think about this, because I've played around with it a little bit. I have one video on it. And I've heard some conflicting things like the development team is really, really small, may or may not be just one person. I don't know if that's even true. But then sometimes I feel nervous about using something if it has a very small development team. It's not that the, that the people that are behind it aren't uh, very talented it's just when you have a project bigger than or big like freeness i kind of tend to trust it more but maybe that's um maybe that doesn't matter what do you guys think i mean
1: would you use open media vault you know the the use case that i think is really relevant with open media vault um because i always my joke on my uh youtube channels, i don't have a use case for that i say that a lot and i don't have a use case specifically for open media vault but Open Media Vault does have something that FreeNAS doesn't, and that's really, as I understood this, at least not tested, um, support for some of those low-powered single-board computers, like the Pine ones, uh, for building storage servers. So they have some spins, uh, I was told, so it's kind of a neat idea if you wanted to do some low-powered um, things like that. The downside is it doesn't have, to my knowledge, any ZFS support in there. So... Um, I think it does now. I'm, does I'm pretty it, sure it does. I, I think it does. and it, but it wasn't native. So, like, even mm-hmm. from the project, it wasn't like a default native, as I understood. And that was one of the mm-hmm. things. And it's I looked when well, last time. I checked our website, and I haven't looked. Of course, this is new version five three nine. It's like been on our roadmap for a while. But it's one of those reasons that I like FreeNAS so much. Is I just feel comfortable with a massive amount of data that I keep or for me at least massive other people with the petabyte servers don't think it is, but um, ZFS just gives me some good confidence when uh, on that, that I don't have with some of the other things for mass amounts of storage.
2: I think the important thing with ZFS is not if it's there, but how well integrated is it? If it is there. Yeah. You know, cause yeah. it's one thing to have it, but if it's not very integrated into the interface, then I mean, unless you want to get proficient with the command line, which is great, then you're not going to have as good of a time with it. Whereas with FreeNAS, it's it's all integrated from what I can see.
1: Yes. Yeah. And and matter of fact, um, years and years ago, FreeNAS had support for more file systems. They've reduced it all. They used to be able to, you could format them. And I think there's still some limited options that you can do. But for the most part, it's CFS. Um, forever ago I remember in the early days of free you could like create different file systems and different groupings um, but that's not the case anymore I mean it's they went all in on it but uh, for good reason it's just when you're talking about the the amount of data that we have and the fear of what they refer to as bit rot where hey that file I haven't accessed in eight years I kind of want that right now oh it's corrupted but it shows good those are bit rot problems that literally yep. occur at the scale we're we're uh, holding on to data.
2: That's true so, so what about trusting it as far as security because this has been something I've kind of wrestled with where you have somebody let's just say they fork a project and they're just one or two people and you know it's maybe it's a very awesome piece of software it's got some great features well done but then the question is how well can these Individuals keep up with security vulnerabilities. And the problem is, you know, like here with Open Media Vault, it's based on Debian 10 Buster. So you'll automatically get any security updates that the Debian team does, which is great. But then when you are creating your own interface and you're adding your features on top of it, I always wonder about added CVEs and then a the smaller development mm-hmm. team. May or may not be able to keep up with those as much as a bigger project would so it's kind of like finding that balance in my opinion can sometimes be kind of hard
1: yeah no i think that's a that's something i bring up a lot because you know doing that i have a lot of firewall videos on my youtube channel the question comes up a lot what have you tried you know insert name of a random firewall and i say you know the firewall is what divides me Uh, my network from the rest of the internet. So I care greatly about the security and proficiency of the, of the team that may be building that particular firewall. I think it's a little bit less of a concern with your, um, like something like open media vault. And because it's behind your firewall, ideally you're not publicly exposing this. Um, But I think it's probably, you know, still a fair assessment anytime you're dealing with that. uh, But Hey, you know, we want to make sure that, um, you know, you're doing things securely and you're updating the packages and you're keeping up with CVEs because, uh, security hard and, uh, it's moving fast. So it's, yep. it's still, I think it's something to consider, but you think about your threat service on the other side of it going, well, how, what's my exposure level? Firewall mm-hmm. exposure level, 1000, man, you are, it is the front line that separates you from the world. So I think deeply about that. Other projects, uh, we can poke at them and we can mitigate because it's internal on my network. Um, so I think it's a little bit lesser of an issue. Uh, but then back to operating systems here back at the peak level, because how, you know, besides the firewall, the internet touches us all through the browser, for example. So every time there's a new browser on the block, it doesn't mean I have to run out and try to use it because... Browser is literally the security portal um, that I'm accessing the internet through. You know, Firefox right. is a great track record. Chrome has a tra- track record. I know Brave seems to be getting popular. I haven't really dug into it, but I'm not, I wasn't one of those early adopters who jumped on it because that same reason. It's ex- my threat surface is exactly that it is the browser versus the internet and finding zero days in it. So,
2: yep, I totally agree.
1: I think it should, it's something that should be put into your assessment anytime you're thinking about software.
2: Yeah, I agree.
1: Yep, that's a great point. All right. Well, I think we concluded all the things we can think of in distro. Watch us run on to a couple news now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Ubuntu 20.04 features the return of a very familiar face. I think it, like you said, between it being yep. the Star Wars and being kind of boring. But boring's okay because we want it to be functional first. It's not gonna be the most cutting edge distribution. It's not gonna be, uh, it, it's gonna be stable and solid and it'll update and it'll load. I think those are good things about it. What, what's your take yep. on it?
2: So the the article that you are mentioning is kind of funny. Um, funny just because it's amusing, it, it's kind of cool. Somebody was playing around with one of the betas and noticed that um, there's a very familiar wallpaper that you can choose to apply when you install 2004 and it's the wallpaper from Hardy Heron way back they they put mm. that in there and i thought that was pretty amusing that they're they're putting older wallpapers in there you know some of the other lts animal mascots from the past i thought that was pretty funny um you know ubuntu 2004 the zfs support i'm still kind of playing around with it so i'm not super familiar you know familiar with it but when you do like an apt disk upgrade or whatever, you run updates, it actually will take a ZFS snapshot for you if, if that's what you're using, if you're using ZFS. So they had that integrated more in this release than they did in the past. So if you have some botched updates, you could just you know restore your ZFS snapshot from before you update, which it created for you automatically when you did that in the first place and then be back to where you were before. So I think that offers an additional layer of protection. But on the downside, when I tried the installer, it still called it an experimental feature. I don't know if they'll take that verbiage off the final version or not, but that's just something to keep in mind.
1: That's interesting. Do you know, um, will Pop OS be bringing ZFS over? Do you have any insight into that?
2: I don't, you know, when I was there with them, they, that wasn't discussed. pack was, it was discussed a lot in the new version because um, and I and I could talk about that in a, in a moment, but, but no, that particular thing didn't come up, but there was a, several things that did. And, you know, that's actually the second article that I brought up. I only had two. So the last article that I brought up was about the pop shell. So that's one of the improvements that's coming in um, 2004 of pop OS. And I read in a recent blog post, they did say that 2004 of pop OS is coming in May. So it looks to me like they're not even trying to be identical to Ubuntu's cadence, like being on the same day, but it's going to be pretty close. But this was the big shocker when we were there in Denver, when we were talking to the dev team about this pop shell, which is essentially taking the features of I3 where you have tiling window management and adding that as an extension to GNOME so that you can have the same experience. And I'm very excited to check this out. And it's kind of funny that this came from Carl, their CEO, getting annoyed that he has this super wide monitor that's literally as long as his desk. It's insane, I would love mm-hmm. to have this monitor. But he was really annoyed with how Gnome handled such a widescreen display because it just would full screen things automatically and super wide and just would look kind of weird and it just annoyed him. So. Um, the other, he and the other guys, they got together and they came up with this extension. And it's going to be featured in Pop! OS 2004, which you can enable this feature that'll give you the tiling experience, which is going to be pretty cool. But they also said that they're making it an extension for GNOME 3.36. So if you are not running Pop! OS, but you are running something that has that version of GNOME, then you'll be able to install this feature yourself if you want to go ahead and use it. That was the big thing that they talked about. They didn't talk about ZFS, but they did talk about, um, so they talked about Flatpak, so they want to make it so that you can choose, I want the apt version of this program, or I want the Flatpak version of it, and in their installer you can actually choose, if you don't care if you're just a beginner and you don't even know what what a Flatpak is, you just hit the install button then everything will be fine. But if you are, you know, a, a higher end user, you, you know your way around the command line, or you actually know what Flatpak is, you can just hit the drop down, say, Yeah, no thanks. That version is too old. I'd rather have the Flatpak because that's more up to date. You can make that decision yourself. That was a big feature that they came up with. And the other thing was being able to go into GNOME settings, and if you have a game, for example, you could tell it, I would very much like you to run on the dedicated GPU. So if you have a multi-GPU system, you can control which GPU the game runs on. And they were saying that they wanted to make that a feature. But then I saw right after they said that GNOME is doing that. So I don't even think they have to do it. I think that's going to be in GNOME, if I'm not mistaken, for pretty much every distro that uses GNOME. So um, there's some pretty exciting things coming, actually. I'm looking forward to the next wave of distros. I think it's almost like um, next-level stuff that's coming. I can't wait.
1: Yeah, I, that Gnome thing's nice to me, uh, I'm excited to hear, like you said, that he had the wide monitor working, because that's, one of my next upgrades is probably going to be an even wider center monitor, mm-hmm. and I run West so on, it was something I know that it, maybe it stuck in my head from uh, many distros ago, or many versions ago, um, that was, I know, is sometimes a challenge in Linux, was getting uh, widescreen monitors to work properly.
2: Yeah, I think one of the biggest issues is that, by default, if you, you know, most desktop environments, as most people know, you can drag a window to the upper left corner or thereabouts and it'll tile to half the screen. And then you can do the same on the in the other direction. And that's great if you have a 1080p display that's the standard size, that's fine. But if you have this super wide monitor, I mean, tiling something to the left half of the screen is still gonna be longer than a 1080p display is and look kind of weird. So what do you do if you wanna have you know, thirds or fourths or something like that to split your display. I think that's what the main challenge is. And that's what this solves because as you open new apps, it's going to um, automatically segregate those into different sections. So I haven't played with it yet because I don't run anything that's running GNOME 3.3.6 yet. I can't wait to check this out. I can't wait.
1: Yeah, that does look uh, really cool. that, that's going to be pretty cool. I like it. Ah, yep. So Tony, What's going on with Git? Git, Git. Well,
0: 15 years ago, uh, our our good friend, uh, or everybody that everybody knows, uh, Linus Torvalds, Turv- he said, you know, I don't like the current state of uh, of how we are controlling versions of software. And in three days, he sat down, wrote Git, and published
1: it. So he he starts with SVN's terrible, which I think everyone agreed with back then. But you used it because of anything else. He takes like a, a, a next one day extra weekend and writes something we're using for the next fifteen years. Right. Put the genius hat on that guy. I mean, mm-hmm. Zip- absolutely wasn't enough.
2: <laughs> you know that's so amazing, and it's it is just being used in places where you wouldn't even expect to see it when you get into things like GitOps and. Um, you know version controlling your Etsy directory and all these cool things that administrators are doing nowadays it's just I don't know I think that some of the coolest things just come from scratching your own itch because it's most likely a problem a lot of people have and will benefit from the fix and git is kind of like that, but on steroids.
1: Yeah. So Mm -hmm. 15 years, it's, it's hard to believe it's been around that long. I mean, of course it's, it's had updates, it's had versions. It's been a very large community project. It started with Linus's idea and it's, you know, it's not just Linus, there's a lot of people contribute to it. Um, But it's still pretty fascinating overall. You know what I mean? Then of course there's GitHub and the Microsoft relationship, which Microsoft got GitHub, but they don't own Git. Git itself is open source. That was some convoluted things. When Microsoft bought it, people thought Microsoft got Git. I'm like, Yes, we did show, we did a show title exactly that, how Microsoft got Git, um, Hmm. which uh, is episode 256. And if you remember, because they had, they wanted it to be that episode number. If you remember, Tony.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was fun.
1: Which is a great episode to roll back to. So If you're looking for some binging, uh, roll back to episode 256. Uh, there's some fun talk about Microsoft's purchase and the zero day that put people on planes, uh, about the capitalization problem with GitHub repositories. It, that was a fun episode that sticks to my head um, from the Microsoft team. But anyways, it, it's a really cool project um, that has turned into the way we handle things now. So it's, it's, a, it's a cool read. We'll have links, of course, in the show notes on this. That's yeah, very cool. Yeah. And speaking of the Linux kernel, new kernel feature, WireGuard. Linux 5.6 adds a bunch of um, system-on-a-chip developer boards, including the Pine, HardRock64, Solid Run, and, of course, WireGuard VPN support. It's all coming in there. And Linus actually um, had something nice to say when he looked at the code for WireGuard, which is unlike Linus to say something really nice about something when someone coded it. But... Um, so we're looking forward to this. Uh, I love, I mean, there's a long list of all the system on the chips that are going to be supported on here. And of course there's some, uh, enhanced support for even the Raspberry Pi four coming in there along with some Logitech devices that use HID plus plus protocol, and, uh, they can report batter- battery voltage. And if you're not familiar with that, with, what that is, this is like your Logitech mouse and Logitech keyboards, which they make a pretty, you know, they have a good product offering. Um, they're going to be able to, pull that battery information and pull it in and pull it into the Linux kernel. Uh, this is pretty cool because this is a feature to Windows users are going, yeah, this is something we have over you. Well, not anymore. <laughs> We're able to pull battery information from our mouse in Linux. So, and that uh,
2: is what I am using right now as we speak, that exact mouse.
1: There you go. And now you'll be able to, when you get the new kernel, to pull the battery information on there. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, my my
2: the best way I've found to know, you know, the state of the battery is, you know, when it stops working abruptly all of a sudden, then I know it's probably time to plug it in. Mm-hmm. That's the best I have.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when it, when it quits working, it's time to get another, it's time to release the battery. Um, uh, the WireGuard thing I'll make a comment on as well. The um, WireGuard has gone through some code auditing. I'm, I'm not 100% sure on this. I got to do some more reading on whether or not they've gone through a proper code audit. And this is something I brought up to a lot of people that say, hey, Tom, when, when should we switch to WireGuard? I'm like, well, how much do you care about protecting it as a VPN? Um, VPNs are once again uh, the firewalls, the front line of you versus the internet, and the VPN sometimes is how you're going to get into uh, remote systems, so you have to trust it. While WireGuard does have less code to audit, um, as they go through and hopefully go through a, a good. Solid security audit once it 's past that that 's when we can try to start trusting it to be developed and used as a protocol that I would trust between you know me and the rest of the world when I have to go get work done and I want to tunnel all my traffic also uh, noteworthy people ask when it is going to be in PF sense Well, interesting part, the people from Netgate are the people writing the code in the BSD kernel for it, so I can guarantee it'll be in PF sense I just don 't know when. And uh, because they're so security conscious over at the PFsense world, as they like to say, it'll be done as soon as it's done.
2: (laughs) Unfortunately, 5.6 is not the Linux kernel in Ubuntu 2004. So I'm hoping that they backport that stuff into it, um, which I know it will get the newer kernel eventually when the hardware enablement stack updates, you know, when it comes to 2004.2. But 2004 is going to have kernel 5.4, which... I hope they backport that stuff down and, and they probably will knowing them. I'm just hopeful that's gonna be the case
1: yeah i'm I, I there's a couple uh kernel utilities uh that you can load that allow you to swap kernels around in uh ubuntu based distros fairly easily so you can get newer or older kernels on a as needed basis
2: the ubuntu mainline kernel p. p a
1: yep that sounds right yep um now I hadn't heard of this project, but apparently because it had an update, I've heard of this project now. Uh, it's called Foliate 2.0. It's a massive update to the GTK based EPUB reader. And um, I've been trying to find maybe for Linux. Uh, forever ago, I used to have a Nook um, that I had hacked and that's where I keep my books on. And I just kind of got away from reading some new books. I do more audiobooks now than I do uh, you know like reading like an epub book and it's because i've never really taken the time to dig into any good linux readers and i ran across this one so i thought it was kind of cool and it's spelled f-o-l-i-a-t-e uh it's easy enough to find of course we'll leave a link in the show notes here Um, but it's a nice epub reader that supports quite a a few different formats has some distraction free reading options and uh this is just nice so you can you know sit down and read a book in linux and have support and that's one of the things i do hoard a little bit of but it's Hoarding is not the right word when you start hoarding books. You may have a quantity of them, but they certainly don't add up to a lot of space compared to all the other data we hoard now. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I, I like to whenever I can. If I can acquire books um, when I buy them, I try to buy things from open source. Uh, oh, I shouldn't say open source, but places that support um, non proprietary book formats. Um, Downpour has been a long time. A company that I've used to purchase my books, and they have different formats that are open. Uh, They don't have any DRM uh, attached to them. So uh, my overall collection of books is not huge, but I have a handful. And, um, yeah, this might be a neat way I can read them easily right inside of Linux without having to rely on different weird – because EPUB is cool for books, but it's, it's not a normal format. It's not like a document you can just open up.
2: I need this. So I, I really need this. I have a ton of IT books that I've purchased. Every time my publisher has that $5 book or ebook sale, I download the EPUB and the PDF of everything. And I've been doing that for years. So I'm going to give this a major shot, because especially if I, now you make me want one of these widescreen monitors. So if I get one, then you know I could have um, a book open in one and then the terminal open right beside it as I'm learning and still have space. So an EPUB reader would really hit the spot.
1: And that would be something maybe Jay, you want to do a video on, uh, even if it's only a short video, just talking about its functionality, like, you know, five minute video. I don't think if I, I have searched in a little while, but I remember when I searched for Linux book reading, I didn't find a lot of great projects uh, on it. And so I, my awareness of this was brought out because it was in, um, you know, a link to an update to it. So, um, so
2: Okay, so I'm going to record the book tomorrow, or the the video, I'm not gonna record a book, the video tomorrow, because there's this series I started called Cool Linux Tools, or Awesome Linux Tools, I think it's called, and I haven't had a chance to do very many of them, and they do very well. So I think what I'll do tomorrow is literally do that. Now, granted, it might take a couple of weeks to show up on my channel, but it's definitely gonna happen because I have a big use case for this.
1: Yeah. Me too. Like I said, I, I have random books that I've been collecting over the years. And I, it might be something I would play with too. So that's kind of cool. I'll look for that video though. Um, and you know, while you're at the command line, I just found this really novel and uh, it's order pizza from the command line from Domino's. <laughs> this is just fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I like that you could script ordering your pizza and pulling the menus and everything else. so this is specifically for Domino's. And there's, I think there's already some pull requests. Someone had said, Hey, can you write it for, um, and Domino's uh, was one of the early companies in the game of being able to make a really nice website for uh, being able to order pizzas. And by weird coincidence, I haven't sent this to him yet, but I actually have a, I have a meeting with him on Monday morning. My friend worked at Domino's and was one of the original people that wrote the pizza tracker, as you guys know it today. Uh, So he, he wrote, he worked for Domino's years ago and he was part of the launch team and wrote the code for this project. He works, he's got his own company now coding, um, and that's why I have a meeting with them because I'm helping them out with uh, some servers on Monday morning. So I'm going to send them this and say, hey, did you know someone wrote it? a GitHub plugin or a GitHub module that allows you to order pizza from the command line from Domino's? And that's just fascinating. Wow.
2: <laughs> that, yeah, that is so cool. It's great to know that stress eating is just a Git clone away.
1: Well, you know, and Phil couldn't join us tonight because he's been uh, diving deep into a, a project you know, and if you don't want to leave the command line because you're writing code, you're like, hold on, let me order a pizza, let me put the parameters dash dash pepperoni, dash dash mushroom, <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh
1: pizza items as command line flags. I, I don't know, that's just as geeky as you can get. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty I, yeah cool. I'm
2: gonna try it. This is a, this is so cool.
1: Yeah, I don't even want a pizza, like I'm not hungry right now, but I kind of want to use it. <laughs> That's maybe tomorrow. My goal is to order a pizza for the command line. That's like, that's my, uh, that's my Sunday project. Can I order make sure pizza? you, make
2: sure <laughs> you do it in Tmux. It'd
1: yes. be even cooler. Can I in, how does it track it? Uh, boy, this will be like, maybe I'll do a live stream. Tom orders pizza from command line. And just has gotta make sure I blur out any passwords I have. Cause I do have a Domino's account cause I do order pizza from them. So. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that was that's my um, end of the news. I think Tony's got another one more item here.
0: Uh, yeah. So when I was looking around for news, this is just the link, uh, but uh, it's called uh, a website called AllTop.com. Oh. And they have uh, there's different subjects and stuff that they they give the, the top uh, articles or whatever from that site. Well, there's there's one for Linux. Uh, so the a Linux subject AllTop. And it gives uh, like 20 different sources and the top 10 or no, the top five uh, articles on each of those. So it was just a a neat, like quick read glance over, you know, and there's things like Linux.com is down there, Reddit, uh, Linux, the uh, slash dot Linux, Linux journal, softpedia, blah, blah, blah. And then you scroll down and then there's Twitter feeds so the best like followers for uh free and open source foundation or the, the free software foundation and oh. Linus is on there and, you know, next day, you know, their Twitter feeds and stuff. And so it, it, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I like that.
2: I really like it too. They, there's an article on there as of the time we're recording this that's title is man says he's fallen in love with an AI chatbot. <laughs> So I thought that's a pretty interesting article. I might have to check out later.
0: Okay. All right. Well, pretty one funny. of the artic- one of the articles I found on there is Jitsi. Uh, we were talking about Jitsi last time. They have some updates, uh, and so they're they're getting some more updates and, and feature pairing pairs or pairs up to what uh, other people are using, and uh, it gives you the the options to uh, mute other people and to kick them out.
1: Oh, nice. So, so yeah. I, I I don't always know how to respond to some YouTube comments, and uh, because I've been doing videos about Zoom and you know some real valid privacy concerns, which mm-hmm. we, by the way, full disclosure, we are recording this on Zoom for all of you, smaller listeners. And uh, we're not worried about those privacy concerns because we're literally making this public. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> we kind of, we're throwing all of it out there. We all set our names and we all are publishing this. So um, I will not say Zoom is great for privacy orientation, but I did debunk in a couple of videos, some of the other issues that uh, people over blew with Zoom, but, and then other ones that were problems that Zoom addressed. Um, back to the topic of Jitsi though, I did a video on Jitsi and, I, one of the comments that I didn't know how to reply to was someone says, I am super disappointed because you did not make clear that Jitsi works best with Chromium and does not work well with Firefox. And what? I didn't realize that either because when I open up Jitsi with Firefox, it says, for a better experience, use Chrome. Now it works in Firefox, it just says, for a better experience, use Chrome. But this person wrote me a Uh, um, a notice of how disappointed they were that I didn't disclose this at the very beginning of the video. (laughs) They refused to use products made by Google and left me a long message. Wow. (laughs) I'm like, I didn't know. (sighs) Yeah. So I wonder if that's one of their improvements is, and I don't know what's not working inside of Firefox and Jitsi, um, but it worked. Like I tested with Firefox. It does function. It just says for a better, also it has like a notice that comes up for a better experience, use Chrome. You click okay and then you can use it. And it worked. So, mm-hmm. uh, But Jitsi is a great alternative. Um, and just also why we're using Zoom and not Jitsi for this MLR is uh, Zoom's recording features better. I mean, people keep asking me, well, how did Zoom get so popular when there's all these alternatives? I'm like, they check a lot of boxes of functionality, um, including there's a separate high-quality audio file that will be produced as soon as we're done recording this. Like, Zoom figured a lot of things out in a very solid way, which is why we continue to use it. And we even had some trouble um, making, trying to make Jitsi record properly for doing that. For video conferencing, it works fine, but some of the recording features, they aren't as good as Zoom has, so. But who knows, with these updates, it'll be better. maybe the next episode of SMR will be on Jitsi. We got goals.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. You know, uh, another, uh, I saw this Raspberry Pi project of um, making your own video doorbell. Ooh. And uh, ring. Yeah, it really a ring cool. Verbal. That'd
1: be cool.
0: Well, what it does is it's not just a ring, it's a two-way video. So you have a video screen out there or a screen that they can see you and you can see them and you can chat. No. And uh and it uses Jitsi uh in full screen. Basically that's what it is. It's it's just like a you know a video chat or video uh, conference and uh it uses Jitsi. I'm like, you know, that would be really it'd be neat, but I don't know if I'd want it connecting out to the internet every time to do this and that. So I thought, well, you can run Jitsi on your own server at home and then you would save on bandwidth or whatever. And, and I thought you know, that would be really cool.
1: We've maybe we were just joking about that at the office. Cause um, we have a sign on our door that says deliveries only. We don't want you in our office. Um, you know, it's, everything's on lockdown, but a few, because of our own social distancing habits that I go from not associating with people to work. And my people I work with are the same thing. They don't associate with people are like, they go from home to work. So we, we are social distancing properly, but we're just the three of us. Um, re- we have more employees, but they're all working remotely, but we have a core three of us that just are there at the office, but we've talked about putting something in so we can have two-week conversations with people who bang on our door without having to get up and go to the door.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I mean, we have signs that explain that it's for deliveries only, but it, they don't read we'll just, right. just leave it at that. If I could yell at them through some type of thing and have a video conference call and not have to leave my office, I'd feel safer. And I can tell them to go away um, <laughs> through through a more polite video thing instead of yelling down the hallway.
2: <laughs> just set up a motion sensor and a Raspberry Pi with a couple of pre-recorded voice tracks of yours yeah. that'll play when it just detects that there's someone there. It's just your voice. that says, go away. You don't even have to do anything.
1: Yeah. Well, you, if you're not if you're not dropping off a package, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> uh, oh, well.
0: I'll find the link to that uh, project, and we'll, yeah, we'll post throw it, it in the show notes. Yeah.
1: All that's right. Nice. Well, I think that's the end of it, folks. We actually went longer than expected. We we have a lot to talk about when we start talking about projects.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, it's fun.
1: Love it. Yeah. Yep. Well, until next time. This is SMLR 322. If you want to reach us, uh, show at smr.us. If you have some feedback, comments, concerns, and suggestions, we're always listening to there. And uh, we are still 127002. What else? That's Anything right. else we got for the good of the class, Tony?
0: No, I think that's it. Uh, and so this was Tony Bemis.
1: Tom Lawrence. Jay LaCroix. All right. And uh, that's it. We're done. Thank you. Uh we we'll, we're going to try to focus on doing this more frequently. We say it all the time, but um you know, we're we're working on it. <laughs> all right, thanks. All right.